This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 281. So today is Sunday, October 16th, 2022, and I'm covering the news and rumor stories that caught my eye for this week. Leica M6, one of the best 35mm film cameras of all time. Many photographers are nostalgic for film. It might be the smell of the darkroom as you wait for your print to develop, the physically mechanical nature of shooting photos, or the skill required to bring home a decent photo. However, not all cameras are created equal, and while we might have a soft spot for the model we used to hone our craft, it's possibly not the camera we'd choose to shoot with or just feel is an extension of our body. So why then is the Leica M6 35mm rangefinder from 1984 so universally loved? Before we can understand the M6, we need to understand Leica. Leica, originally an optical company, was formed in 1849 by Ernst Lights. But it was the creation of the prototype UR Leica, a portable unit designed to test motion picture film speed, by lights engineer Oscar Barnack in 1913 that proved to be a defining moment. Barnack subsequently recognized that the advent of small, fast lenses presented an opportunity to also develop a small camera. The innovation, besides recognizing this fact, was in taking 35mm real film from the motion picture industry and passing it horizontally rather than vertically through a stills camera matching the small film to a small lens. The revolutionary move away from plates and sheets had begun. Light subsequently released the Leica One in 1925, which incorporated a fixed 50mm lens and was the weapon of choice for legendary French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson. Perhaps more than any other camera, the Leica II was the innovation that the market was waiting for as it introduced interchangeable lenses and a rangefinder. You could more easily see what you were going to get, and so the superior technical solution did away with the need for bulkier view cameras and twin, le twin lens reflex or TLR cameras. A view camera needs you to load the film after you've composed, while a TLR doesn't show you what the taking lens sees. Then in 1954, Leica introduced the M3, which became its second defining moment and perhaps the most iconic, iconic camera ever produced. In some ways, it's odd that the camera was ever released, given that the industry had seriously begun to pivot to the single lens reflex or SLR design after the war. This, coupled with the rise of Japanese manufacturers, ultimately led to the seminal release of the Nikon F in 1959. However, the M3 finally made Leica's rangefinders a compelling package. As part of a completely redesigned body, now with a wind lever, Leica introduced a bayonet mount along with a combined 
viewfinder rangefinder, which automatically adjusted the frame lines and corrected for parallax. As ever with Leica, the manufacturing quality was high and the lenses exquisite. The M3 might have had some divergent design traits, such as the mechanism for loading the film by removing the bottom plate, but it is both a delight to hold and use. Again, strangely, the M3 was very successful for Leica, selling some 220,000 units when its production run ended in 1966. I say strangely because the success of the SLR as both a design concept and its implementation by Japanese manufacturers meant that the rangefinder was replaced as the de facto standard, at least in terms of volume manufacturing. While the M3 was undoubtedly a financial success, remember that the Nikon F sold over three times as many at 862,000 cameras over a similar period of time. What should have happened next was the incremental release of increasingly advanced models, eventually leading to the M6 and R3. The reality was the Japanese manufacturers were innovating rapidly in developing sophisticated microelectronics, and Leica was not. Leica's take on the SLR, the Leica Flex, was not commercially successful, and the failure of the M5 to garner traction required drastic action for what had ostensibly been a lost decade where the competition had streaked ahead. That required the modernization of their camera designs and a return to sure footing financially. The former they addressed through a partnership with Minolta, which was arguably leading in camera R&D at the time and rebadging of their SLR designs in the form of the R3. The latter they achieved by immediately restarting production of the M4, originally released in 1967 as a direct successor to the M3. It saw limited changes to its progenitor and remained predominantly hand-built. However, success came in the form of evolving the design to the M4 II and later M4P to incorporate more frame lines and support for hot shoe flash and motor wind. More importantly, production was moved to Leica's Canadian subsidiary and the manufacturing process was streamlined. In short, Leica wanted the ability to build a better M3 at a lower cost. So what was Leica's goal for camera development? The first half of the 1970s was an interesting inflection point for the company with the release of the M5 and the R3. The latter, perhaps a response to the former. The M5 evolved from the M4, introducing TTL metering and in the process becoming larger, heavier, and more expensive. It was rapidly shelved. In 1972, Leica formally linked up with Minolta and used their expertise to release the R3 in 1976, which was a commercial success. The re-release of the M4 and subsequent Canadian production arguably saved both the rangefinder and Leica more generally but the future of the design was far from secure. The obvious evolution of the M4 was an M3-based form factor with TTL metering, a second bite of the TTL apple, to write the M5 wrongs, and so the M6 was born. Leica learned from its mistakes, and unsurprisingly, the M6 doesn't pull any punches. 
It was unshamedly based on the M4P, but introduced TTL metering in the form of LED indicators in the viewfinder. There are no automatic modes, which were introduced in the later M7, but that is not to its detriment. This is a manual camera with a built-in light meter bringing everything that was loved about the M3 without making you guess exposure or whip out a handheld meter. Now here's the thing. A Leica M takes on a life of its own when you hold it in your hands. Leica realized that for journalism, the rangefinder was the only design that worked for many photographers. It was small, could be paired with class-leading lenses, was fast to focus, and was unobtrusive. It's not only a joy to hold, but a joy to use. From the reassuringly exquisite manufacturing to the perfectly weighted shutter speed dial, canted film advance, and sharp viewfinder focusing. In a world used to the SLR mirror box, having a viewfinder with frame lines might seem antiquated. It's not. Your eye knows it's looking at a frame of the world and composes accordingly, accurately adjusting focus before releasing the shutter. You can preset either the shutter speed or the aperture, check the exposure, and then adjust, adjust the other. In the world of mirrorless cameras, we might expect the M6 to feel light and unbalanced. Again, it's not. It weighs in at a pleasant 1.29 pounds or 585 grams. It's neither unduly light nor heavy, but well balanced. Perhaps this gets to the nub of why the M6 hits the pinnacle of film cameras. It doesn't obstruct photo making in the way that an old view camera would, yet it refuses to automate the photographer out of the equation. The M6 and the M5 both feature built-in light meters, but the M6 boasts a smaller and arguably more beautiful design, as well as the culmination of three decades of Leica M rangefinder evolution. And compared to the heavily electronic Leica M7, the M6 is the last fully manual Leica M rangefinder that leaves all decision-making to the photographer. If M6 shooters are passionate, that's because the camera asks them to be in the moment, to make the photo, to become an instrumental part of the camera. Call it camera zen. Where else can you attain the same level of connectedness? The price of a used Leica M6 rangefinder cameras has steadily marched upward over the past decades. While the camera could be purchased secondhand for less than $1,500 in the late 2000s and early 2010s, it can, it can be difficult to find one these days for less than $2,500, and bodies in mint condition can sell for well over $3,000. If you're in the market for a used Leica M6, it's important to know the variants that are available. The first difference you'll find is color. As with many Leica M models, the standard M6 was produced in silver and black versions. While the silver may carry the more iconic Leica M look, the black version is the more discreet when shooting on the street and can be desirable for not att attracting attention of subjects or robbers. Another difference between the M6 cameras is viewfinder magnification. In addition to the standard 0.72 times magnification, there are also versions with a 0.58 times magnification geared toward wide-angle shooting and a 0.85 times magnification ideal for telephoto lenses. 
There are three, or there are a few main variants of the M6 that were introduced over the years. After the original Leica M6 was unveiled in 1984, Leica announced the M6J in 1994. It was a limited edition run of the 1,640 bodies that celebrated the 40th anniversary of the Leica M line. This collector's camera introduced the 085 times viewfinder magnification. In 1998, Leica launched the M6 0.85X, a standard production version of the M6 that offered a new viewfinder that made it easier to accurately focus when shooting with long focal lengths or wide aperture lenses. After producing 3,130 units of the M6 0.85X, Leica introduced the new M6 TTL, which offered TTL flash capability and which eventually offered all three rangefinder magnifications during its four-year run of 058 times, 072 times, and 085 times. Both the original Leica M6 and the M6 TTL can be found on used marketplaces for roughly the same prices. If purchasing from less reputable sources, such as Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist transaction, make sure you know the standard tips for things you should check in the second-hand film camera. Hopefully, this article is helpful primer for understanding why the Leica M6 is such a legendary model in film camera history. If you have the desire and means to purchase one, we highly recommend it. The Leica M6 is definitely a holy grail of 35mm rangefinders. And this is an interesting article, and I've heard this before, that the M6 was hands-down one of the greatest 35-millimeter film cameras of all time. But as the old saying goes, generally only lawyers and dentists can afford a Leica. (laughs) But it is an extremely beautiful camera, and it's interesting to see that Leica over the years made so many variants of the M6. And all of them are extremely popular, and they all seem to be holding their value quite well over the decades. People are astonished that Randy Johnson is a photographer. A photo of baseball pitching legend Randy Johnson photographing an NFL game lit up the internet yesterday. This is from October 13th. The photo of Johnson with a Canon 1D attached to a telephoto lens and a jacket with NFL photographer emblazoned on it was posted by Sophie Kleeman on Twitter yesterday, who wrote, Learn today that Randy Johnson is now a professional photographer and shoots NFL games? As noted by NBC Sports, the photo was actually taken back in 2011 at a Dallas Cowboys versus Arizona Cardinals game, and it's not clear whether Johnson is still shooting NFL games. In 2015, Petapixel reported that Johnson was given the honor of raising the Seattle Seahawks' 12 flags as a special celebratory guest before he grabbed his DSLR and went to the sidelines to capture the action. Johnson's website displays travel, music, and wildlife photos. It seems he has traveled extensively in Africa and Asia to capture his portfolio. Before he was a 10-time All-Star, Johnson studied photojournalism at the University of Southern California from 1983 to 1985. Quote, my career as a Major League Baseball pitcher has been well documented. But what is not well known is my passion for photography, Johnson writes on his website. Quote, baseball became my occupation for two decades, but my love of photography never left. Following my 2010 retirement, I was able to focus my attention back to this passion. 
Johnson's chosen logo is a dead bird. The macabre logo references a famous incident during his baseball career when he killed a bird with one of his pitches. In a bizarre incident, an unfortunate bird somehow flew into the path of the ball. Johnson was well known for his fast pitches. Johnson says that his photos have been published in magazines such as Rolling Stone, Spin, and Metal Hammer. His concert portfolio boasts major stars of the heavy rock uh, scene, including Metallica, Lemmy from Motorhead, and Kiss. If Johnson is still covering NFL, hopefully he won't cross Devontae Adams. The Las Vegas Raiders wide receiver has been charged with a misdemeanor assault on a photographer. That said, Johnson stands as six foot ten inches and was nicknamed Big Unit. And if you want to see the uh, video of Johnson accidentally killing a bird with one of his pitches, you can see that on YouTube. It's in this article, which you can find in the show notes. And good for him. I'm glad to see that he's always had a passion for photography and playing baseball was just his way of paying the bills. But photography has always been his passion, and he's back at it now that he's retired from baseball. Good for you, Randy. Queen Elizabeth II, capturing the world's most photographed woman in life and death. The late Queen Elizabeth II was one of the most photographed figures in history. During a long period in which British military and political reach waned, images of Her Majesty underpinned the projection of soft power and played a key role in bolstering public support for the monarchy. Her 70-year reign witnessed sweeping technological changes and groundbreaking innovation in photography. The revolutionary Leica M3 was released in 1954, used by a generation of frontline photojournalists and even the Queen herself. Soon followed Polaroid and then single-lens reflex, the legendary Nikon F, and -and point-and-shoot autofocus cameras. And finally, the move from darkroom to digital. Smartphones and Instagram have transformed how images are experienced and shared, often instantaneously. The Queen's likeness appeared on banknotes, coins, stamps, and she was represented in many art forms. Renowned photographers, including Sir Cecil Baton, David Bailey, and Annie Leibovitz, were able to transform her images across generations. Following her death, pictures memorializing Queen Elizabeth's legacy were quickly disseminated by both the world's press and the state from a vast online archive. These photographs documented a life spanning 10 decades, picturing her everywhere from official residence to far-flung parts of the Commonwealth, opening schools and hospitals to peering through binoculars from racecourse balconies. Many front pages featured Beaton's iconic color portrait taken at Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953. This image merged royal fantasy and reality into a single picture, demonstrating the unofficial court photographer's vision and technical virtuosity. To capture this image, Beaton transformed the Queen's drawing room at Buckingham Palace into a studio using a 1,000-watt bulb and painted backdrop of a, of the fan vaulted ceiling in Henry VII's Lady Chapel. His combination of textures, the coronation robes, imperial state crown, scepter and orb, gilt furniture, colors, blue and gold, and lighting, the white aura that surrounds the queen, lends either reality to an overworldly portrait. 
Dorothy Wilding's 1952 photographs of Queen Elizabeth II, taken just weeks after her accession, were also shared widely during the period of mourning. British curator and author Val Williams described Wilding's ability to make women, quote, look as they had never looked before, uncompromisingly modern. One of her portraits also illustrated British postage stamps between 1952 and 1967. Soon after the Queen's death, the immediately recognizable profile of a youthful monarch wearing a tiara replaced rolling advertising of the vast electronic display at London's Piccadilly Circus. While the Queen's physical appearance changed over the decades, her global outlook and public impartiality remained constant. Photographs rarely depicted an emotional monarch. The Aberfan disaster in 1966 and selected memorial services were notable exceptions. A handful of famous photographers did occasionally reveal another side of the queen. Beaton portrayed her wearing a, bloat, or a boat cloak against a blue backdrop in 1968. Critics described the image inspired by Pietro Aglioni's 1955 painting as one of an imperious forceful and determined monarch prepared to move with the times. Bailey's 2014 black and white portrait of 88-year-old Queen Elizabeth II was another example. It depicted her wearing a sapphire dress and jewels with a radiant smile and is emblematic of how she embraced shifting photographic styles during her reign. I took my camera under the streets of the Capitol following Queen's, the Queen's death, capturing not just the spirit of the nation during a rare period of official mourning, but also blanket projection of Queen's images. Just moments after her death, regal portraits appeared on buildings, bus stops, and advertised, advertising hoardings. Wide-eyed tourists focused their smartphones not on London's iconic double-decker buses and telephone boxes, but on unfamiliar scenes. Black and white portraits in gold picture frames placed in shop windows with black backdrops. Pilgrimage-like crowds surged down the mall. Others in overall suits and uniforms carried or hurried around the Capitol carrying bouquets of floral tributes, stopping occasionally to take photographs. Reverential portraits published in newspapers immediately following the Queen's death morphed into more traditional ceremonial images. King Charles III delivering his first address to the nation, the new monarch greeting mourners at the palace and assuming, quote, the heavy duties of sovereignty and the royal family meeting members of the public. Photos documented the journey of Her Majesty's coffin draped in the royal standard from Memorial to St. Gill's Cathedral in Edinburgh, and then finally lying in state in London. As the bells rang out at Westminster Abbey, long hours-long queues by the Thames and crowds building against, along the mall waited to pay their last respects, holding newspapers with bold front pages, clutching photographic prints, and wearing flags depicting the Queen's likeness. Souvenir kiosks did a brisk trade in commemorative postcards, flags, hats, and pins, all emblazoned with her images. Displaying the Queen's image so ubiquitously after her death affirmed her iconic status. Her state funeral marks both the end of a period of reflection and the beginning of a new era headed by King Charles III. In the coming years, photographs of the new Elizabethan era are bound to endure alongside continuing debate about the future of the monarchy and the Commonwealth.
And there are some absolutely beautiful images in this article, which you can find in the show notes. I highly encourage you to check them out. Queen Elizabeth was a remarkable woman, and I still send my thoughts and prayers out to all of those in the United Kingdom, especially my close friends that live there. Nightcore unveils the Blower Baby 2, a better camera sensor blower. Nightcore, the company known for making unique rechargeable batteries and camera accessories, has released the second generation of its rechargeable air duster and camera sensor cleaner. It's called the Blower Baby 2. The updated electronic air duster designed specifically for cameras and delicate electronics is labeled as a must-have for photographers that need to keep their gear as clean as possible. The new BB2 has many improvements over its predecessor, starting with a 33.6-watt high-power motor that can eliminate any dust with speeds of up to 49.7 miles per hour at its highest setting. The device can be used up to 800 times, just 800 on a single charge. The ultra-compact device, somewhat resembling a walkie-talkie, is meant to fit easily and discreetly into any existing gear kit, allowing creatives the freedom to ensure the lenses and camera sensors are free of dirt, dust, spots, no matter the location. The new additions made to this version have been carefully crafted based on existing user feedback to meet all the functions creatives need. While still similar to the original version, the BB-2 now has three wind speed settings, including a silent mode at 18.5 miles per hour, an optical speed at 34 miles per hour, and then the max speed of 49.7 miles per hour for extreme cleaning and dusting. In addition to the adjustable duster speeds, the updated device contains a magnetic quick-release brush for cleaning camera bodies, an optional lens cleaning brush, and a built-in LED light to help eliminate or illuminate the cleaning areas. According to the company, the BB-2 also has an improved battery that has a capacity of approximately 30% more than its predecessor and only takes about an hour to fully charge from completely drained. The magnetic cleaning brush is also removable and replaceable so users can always ensure their devices are getting the best treatment. Finally, the Blower Baby 2 also comes fitted with a transparent dust cover for the air nozzle to prevent any debris from getting into the device while in storage and transit, and a lock mode to prevent accidental activation while tucked away in a gear pack or back pocket. And there is an accompanying YouTube video. The Blower Baby is available now for $89.95 or just the device for for just the device or $92.95 with the optional lens cleaning pen. For more information, can be found on the official product page, which you can find in this article in the show notes. Now, I had not heard of this device before. I did not realize that they had previously released an electronic lens uh, and uh, sensor dust blower. This is definitely a unique device and extremely interesting. I might have to pick one of these up for myself just to have it to help keep my lenses clean and stuff like that. It's definitely an interesting item, and I love the fact that it is completely rechargeable. My hat's off to them for thinking of that instead of having to constantly put in throwaway batteries, which is a huge annoyance uh, for myself and many others. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. 
we hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. And now we'll head on over to Canon Rumors. Canon EOS R6 Mark II. Here are some more specifications. Yesterday, October 12th, we reported the first Surefire specifications for the upcoming Canon EOS Mark VI, or R6 Mark II. A few more specifications have made it to us, and we see some first-time features we do believe. The Canon EOS Mark R6 Mark II specifications, new information in bold, 24-megapixel full-frame CMOS sensor, dual-pixel RAW, RAW burst, dual-pixel CMOS AF, in-body stabilization, digital teleconverter, 12 frames per second mechanical, hybrid auto, 430, uh, 4K 30p no crop, 4K 60p crop, the EOS R6 has a 1.1 times crop, Canon Log 3 HDRPQ, Cloud Raw Processing, RF and RFS lenses, SD, SDHC dual card slot, not much change in the form factor over the original R6. So it's interesting because I hadn't realized that there had been any previous rumors on an R6 Mark II, but it does make sense that Canon would do a Mark II of the R6 as it has been a hugely popular camera. I absolutely loved mine when I was still shooting Canon. Firmware major feature and bug fix update for the Canon Cinema EOS C300 Mark III. Canon has released a major new feature and bug fix firmware update for the Canon Cinema EOS C300 Mark III. Firmware version 1.0.4.1 incorporates the following enhancements. Adds support for EU V3 Expansion Unit 3. Adds Focus Position Guide feature. Adds support for additional commands for Canon IP XC protocol. The following features are enabled when the following lenses are attached. The CN 8x15 IAS-SE1. The CN 8x15 IAS-SP1. The CN E45-135 mm T2.4 LF. The CN E45-135 mm T2.4 LFP. Displaying metadata such as the model name and the focus distance of the lens attached. Displaying T number, support for peripheral illumination correction and chronomatic uh, chronomatic lens, arboration correction, EF only. Support for dual pixel focus guide, EF only. Enables face detection and tracking when S and F shooting frame rate is set uh, set from 24 to 120 frames per second. Adds support for four-channel display and audio meter. Improves the retention of the recording setting when switching between normal shooting and SNF shooting. Adds Canon 709BT.709 to the gamma color space and custom picture setting. Adds CMT709 and LUT in sub-record color uh, conversion. Adds G-gain in the white balances and custom picture settings. 
add support for the CF Express VPG 400 video performance guarantee, fixes minor issues when using the SIN Servo lens. You can download the firmware at the official Canon website, and you can find that link in this article in the show notes. Next up from Nikon Rumors, the Mikey or Mike 50mm F095 lens for the Nikon Z mount review. Have you heard of a Nifty 50? A Nifty 50 is a fast 50mm lens. Typically, it has a maximum aperture of at least f2.8. A very fast lens might have a max aperture of f1.2, but this lens will open up to f095. That's two-thirds of a stop faster than f1.2. That's just about as fast as you can get. Mike, a Chinese lens manufacturer, makes low-cost, simple manual focus lenses at reasonable prices. They are now producing this fast manual focus APS-C lens for the Nikon Z mount. It has five groups and seven elements, F095 to F16, a minimum focus distance of 0.45 meters or 1.5 feet, a field of view of 32 degrees, and a 62-millimeter filter mount. At the time of this writing, it sells for $249 on Amazon. This is a fairly compact lens, and its size fits nicely with the size of the Nikon Z50. It is very sturdy and is constructed of aluminum alloy. It weighs about 15 ounces or 418 grams mounted on my Z50. The combo weighs almost 2 pounds or 894 grams. The all-metal construction promises a long life and durability. The aperture and focus dials operate very smoothly, but also stay in place when you move your hand away. The mount is all-metal and mounts to the camera securely with no movement or looseness. What comes in the box? The lens, front and rear lens caps, and a warranty card. But what is this lens useful for? Well, it's a good general purpose lens for any kind of photography, but the 50 millimeter focal length, which is the equivalent of 75 on an APS-C sensor, is in the range considered appropriate for portraiture. And the F095F stop will allow you to take pictures in low light with faster shutter speeds and lower ISO settings. The depth of field at F095 is very shallow. It's paper thin at close distances. At medium distances, it's a bit deeper, giving more opportunities for blurred backgrounds than lenses with slower apertures. Is it hard to focus a lens manually? I had trouble with manual focus lenses when I was using DSLRs, but the Z-mount mirrorless cameras have focus peaking. When you adjust the focus with focus peaking enabled, you see a highlight of what is in focus in the viewfinder, so it's easy to adjust what is in focus. This is an APS-C DX lens, but it will work on all Z-mount cameras. On a DX camera, either set the option to shoot in DX format or crop the pictures afterwards. This will produce smaller pictures than the FX pictures that the camera normally takes. On my Z6, it will will produce an 11.5 megapixel image instead of 24 megapixels. All of the sample pictures in this review are shot with the Z50. If you have an interesting idea for a guest post, you can contact me here. And there are some absolutely stunning images in this article in the show notes of this lens in action on his Z50. So you might want to check it out for yourself. It is an intriguing looking lens. 
Next up, Astra Hari will soon announce two new autofocus lenses for the Nikon Z mount, and one of them will be a huge super telephoto lens. Astahori is a new Chinese lens maker, previously known as Rockstar, and their products are sold on Amazon. Astahori will soon announce two new autofocus lenses for the Nikon Z mount. The first lens is actually interesting based on this not yet released teaser. This new Astrohori lens will be a 385 millimeters in length as long as the Nikon Nikkor Z 800 millimeter f6.3 VRS. I find this interesting since the current Chinese lens offering is usually small prime lenses. This seems to be the first super telephoto lens coming from a Chinese maker. Stay tuned for details or contact me anonymously if you have any details on this lens. The second lens will most likely be an already rumored 85mm f1.8 full-frame autofocus lens. Astahori already has several lenses for the Nikon Z mount and other mounts that you can find in links in this article in the show notes. And now on over to Fuji Rumors. TT Artisan's 50mm f1.4 tilt lens for Fujifilm coming soon. TT Artisans has just released the TT Artisan 50mm f1.4 tilt lens for the Sony E-mount and the L-mount. The Fujifilm X-mount version will follow soon. The lens costs $199 and is available on Amazon US. And there are some beautiful images in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself. And if they're going to sell the X-mount version for the same price as the Sony E and the L-mount, I will definitely be picking one of these up because I haven't had a tilt lens since I shot Canon. So it would be nice to have one for my X-T4s. Fujifilm Managers interviews about competition and alliances, dreams of modular and fixed lens GFX, and more. There have been two interviews of Fujifilm managers, one in French, the more comprehensive one, and one in Japanese, which was a short one. I will sum up both of them, but the Japanese one only because it involves Koji Matsumoto, the president of Fujifilm Imaging. It does not say much at all, but if we hear but if we hear from his mouth that XH2 and XH2S are selling better than Fujifilm thought, then it has value. The French manager was definitely much more talkative, and if you don't speak French, our summary below will cover it all. The French interview at Phototrend, original French version, is available in an accompanying link. This interview is with French product manager Cyril Duchin. Of course, the main focus is on the French market, but there are general considerations too. Impact of COVID was much more limited than Fujifilm feared. Luckily, the X-T4 was announced shortly before the lockdowns, and it saved the year for Fujifilm. France is the last country to switch from DSLR to mirrorless. Other EU countries made the switch faster. Germany, for example, made the massive switch four years earlier than France. Fujifilm was able to intercept part of the customers who were leaving Olympics, Olympus after Olympus quit the camera market and sold all to OM Digital. Micro Four Thirds users come to Fujifilm because the value comp, they value compactness. The post-COVID is now marked by chip and part shortages. XH2 and XH2S incorporate new technology that will find its way into future Fujifilm cameras. The X-H2S is by far the most affordable and accessible stack sensor camera on the market compared to full-frame stack sensors. 
During COVID years, Fujifilm focused mostly on renewing their GFX series, the GFX 100S and the 50S2, and less on APS-C series. X-H2 is as meant offering high resolution that can be found on full frame in a balanced and compact package. The PSAM dial is to attract customers into the Fujifilm X system who don't like retro-styled controls. Fujifilm is NR1 in APS-C, oh, it's number one in APS-C market, although the Canon EOS R7 is doing very well. Nikon took advantage of the fact that they had more Nikon ZFC stock, whereas Fujifilm had more difficulties with production. Pentax is non-existent. Sony is focusing more on video with their APS-C line. See the Sony FX30. Having competition is always a good thing, but in terms of image quality and ISO noise, Fujifilm is still the best in the APS-C market. Other APS-C cameras from other brands have more compromises that Fuji's latest X-H2 and X-H2S do not have. Fujifilm is a high-end brand where when customers come to Fujifilm looking with a with a less than 1K budget. Unfortunately, Fujifilm can now meet their requests. Admin note, this pretty much confirms that their entry-level line is now dead. The strongest uh, competitor for Fujifilm is the Canon EOS R7. Entry-level XA7 and X-T200 is popular mainly in Asia among female audience. In France, the main customer is usually 55 and up men. Sadly, not enough young people and women. It's it's not sure if Fujifilm will return to entry level as the sub 1K market is mostly in the control of smartphones. The new entry level for Fujifilm are the XS10, the XE4, and the XT30. The X100V is doing very well all over the world. The X100V has the particularity of recording very good sales with each generation without any shortness of breath. It has sold more than 100,000 copies worldwide for each generation, which represents a very good performance. It is a case to which our customers are very attached to. We can always have it in our pocket. We find it especially with SLR owners, since it is the case that we can take it with us on weekends. IBIS on the X100 line seems superfluous as it would make the camera bigger. The only alternative to the X100V are the Ricoh GR3 and the Leica Q. Opening them out to third parties is very good for Fujifilm. Also, any third third parties only want to make AF lenses if your market is big enough, implying that Fujifilm is now big enough for Sigma, Tamron, Samyang, and company to develop AF lenses. The needs of the photographers are different, so they decide if they want to use Fujinon lenses or third-party lenses. The manager thinks that the market will continue to shrink in volume, but that this decrease will be offset by an increase in the purchase price. Smartphones is a much bigger market, hence companies put a lot of R&D there that camera companies can not match. Thus, artificial intelligence and mechanisms based on deep learning are only beginning to arrive on photo cameras at Fujifilm as well as at other comp- uh, other companies competitors, especially on the side of autofocus. He thinks Fujifilm has still 10 to 15 beautiful years ahead, but but will all camera companies still be there in 10 to 15 years? Panasonic, Sigma, and Leica merged in the Elmont Alliance to increase their chances to survive in future and share R&D. 
Why couldn't Canon, Nikon, Fujifilm, and Sony merge in alliance and share their R&D, especially knowing that Fujifilm, Nikon, and Sony share the same sensors? Photos taken on the smartphone are made to be viewed on smartphone screen. To print, it takes much more than a smartphone. For Fujifilm customers, video is still mostly an accessory, and it's more complicated overall than photography. And yet, it was a mistake for Fujifilm not to take video too seriously at the beginning. The X-H2 and the X-H2S go all in with video. If a brand declares that the market is driven by professionals, you can shout bullshit. Uh, let's see. If the pros present a niche market who's a, who exhaust their equipment before replacing it, on the other hand, some customers are lucky to have extremely large budgets. For example, with the GFX 50S2, we are on about 80% of amateurs. With the GFX 100S, we have about 60% of professionals. Prosumers who are who make up the photo market today, they have incredibly incredible purchasing power and they make their brand and they make brands happy. Fujifilm moves away from entry level because we realize that for part of our customers, price is not an important point. Fujifilm will update its APS-C fleet in the future. It remains to see if 40 megapixels or 26 megapixels stack sensors. Firmware will evolve. They will watch Sony full-frame announcements to see what the future of the GFX range will be made of. GFX has made the inaccessible, accessible, portable medium format. And uh, let's see, the more Fujifilm sells, the lower the price for the sensor, and hence Fujifilm can sell the cameras cheaper. The manager dreams of a GFX 200 one day, a large format version of the X100V. He also dreams of a modular GFX. So it's definitely interesting. Next up is uh, Koji, president of Fujifilm Imaging. The interview is in Japanese. Reservations for X-H2 and X-H2S were stronger than they anticipated and it hence took long to develop the products. Instax keeps rocking and will continue to be brought out to market so definitely some interesting interviews with different two different managers under the fujifilm umbrella and definitely some interesting stuff coming in the future and now to round out today's episode we head on over to suny alpha rumors first up five day deal get the new 2022 photography bundle yesterday uh which is october 14th as of this writing, was the yearly big five-day deal photography bundle launch. Click here. For a short time, their server crashed due to the high demand, but now it's back online. So many options for all types and levels of photographers. You have the main bundle, the pro bundle, the charity bundle, and the exclusive bonus. And you can save 95% on all of these photography resources. And last up, Sony Electronics President and COO Neil Manowitz. You should expect future APS-C products coming. Miguel Quills interviewed Sony Electronics President and COO Neil Manowitz. Here's a couple of interesting points. Our focus is on full frame where all the innovation is happening. The gap with medium format is small because of the constant evolution of full frame sensors. There are two big paths for innovation, the sensor and AI processing. Sony truly believes in APS-C, but the supply chain issues really impacted the APS-C market. You should expect APS-C products coming out 
in the near future. And you can see this interview, you can watch it on YouTube, and you can find that interview in this article in today's show notes. So that is going to wrap up episode 281 of the Liam Photography Podcast. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. Also, remind wanted to remind you to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, hit the little bell icon so you can be notified as new content drops, and I will see you all again next Thursday.